Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome everyone to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella, and with me for today's Firefly Willows L-I-V-E Roundtable are my two delightful co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning. And hi, C. Lutmers. Hello. And my topic today that I want to share with my co-hosts and with all of you is is games. Uh, I've, I've recently encountered some fascinating TED Talks, two fascinating TED Talks by a woman by the name of Jane McConigal, who is a, a game researcher, a gamer and a game researcher. And I, I'll post links to these two TED Talks because I think they were so fascinating to me. Uh, but the upshot of all of it was that there is research that shows that there's very deep power in harnessing the gaming instincts, the things that happen when we play games. And I guess this fascinates me quite a bit because I am I am I'm not very good at playing. I'm not very good at playing and I and I don't play games particularly uh any kind of structured games. And I'm starting to realize that there's a lot that I'm missing. And it isn't just you know life isn't just about being productive. There's there's actually value to be harnessed from playing and in particular in this case we're talking about playing more structured games but so I'm I'm looking for uh, I'm looking to learn from my co-hosts and from all of you listeners what what do we get out of games what do you like about them and what motivates you to play them anybody well, John, I have to come forward and bear my soul and share that I've never played an online game in my life. 
on the upside, I did watch the TED video. And I was really <laughs> impressed with the potential. So I can truly come to the table with beginner's eyes. Well, and that's a very valuable impression. <laughs> yes, it is. So, so stay <laughs> precious. <laughs> uh, but, but it isn't just isn't just just about online games. It's 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 about playing games in general. About the the idea of creating uh, a fantasy world in which you, you know, even if it's Monopoly, right, or or something like that. It's like this. Something happens when you do that. So when you play, what is what is it that's happening when you play a game? Well, John, I don't for myself, like when I play a game, I'm still myself and I'm observing myself playing a game. So I've never had the experience of melding the game with my persona. And I believe that that's sometimes where people go with this. But I, I don't have experience with that. Maybe oh. High C does. High C? Um... Well, I tend more to play games that are like strategy based or something like that. Um, I mean, I like card games and board games and stuff or, you know, uh, online or video games I play would fall in the strategy category, which can be more about like um, wandering through different landscapes where you're searching for different things and then you have puzzles you have to do when you find it in order to unlock something or um, reveal something or get something that's going to help to then do another puzzle along the way and that kind of thing. Uh, and so for me, I think it's more about getting, it is that sense of getting lost in another world, but it's also stimulating my brain in ways that maybe it doesn't normally get stimulated by other things that I do on a more daily basis. Uh, and, you know, and, and there has been research on that, like playing card games and things like that actually is something they recommend to people as they get older, uh, people that might have um, some sort of Alzheimer's or something like that coming on because they've found that it can help to lessen the effects of that. If people are doing that all their lives, oftentimes they found that it helps to stave off those kind of things really uh, developing or developing as strongly as they might. Um, so sometimes I play games with an agenda that says, ha, this is going to keep me completely sane and healthy for all of my life. <laughs> uh, um, and, and, and I also like the idea of outwitting and not so much outwitting other people, I mean, I, I can enjoy playing games that involve other people. It makes it sound like some loner just sits in a room. But, um, you know, but, but I like the idea of trying to outwit something and, and find the pattern or, or find the way around and say, ah, it's not so much about winning as it is having outwitted the the game or the creator of the game in something. So I think it's it allows me that that mental stimulation uh, and and it takes me outside of my normal day-to-day -day routine but still gives me something to be doing that doesn't feel as if it's just completely vegging yeah you know there's there's a, there's a trend in technology I guess it's I would I would say it's in technology because it seems to be the area where we're as a culture we're investing a lot of our creative energies because there's room there to express it. Um, there's a trend 
called gamification, right? Where everything is being turned into a game. And, you know, I think there's a lot of really good things about that. I think there's a lot of power in that because it harnesses something in the human animal that is, you know, satisfying and reinforcing in certain ways. You know, there's there's something in the research that Jane McConigal uh, shared. Uh, she showed a picture of a face of a, of a gamer, and, the, and she analyzed the face, and she said, this is the face of someone who is on the verge of an epic win, she called it. An epic win, where uh, you're placed in a situation where there's significant stress uh, and risk of failure, but based on your your capacities and strengths and skills, you are finding that you are being successful, and being successful in a way that surprises you with your own capacity for success, and so you get into this place of of excited optimism that you're going to achieve something that you never imagined you could achieve. And so the idea that we might might cultivate this this enhanced kind of um optimism, this endeavoring optimism that might come from those experiences of of the epic win uh, seems to be a really positive force in uh in in as we instrument our culture for more games but i wonder you know is there is there a downside to games well th- there's a downside to gamification because unfortunately gamification has now started to be done in everything and i've even seen articles where companies have set up the 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 culture of the the company in from a gamification model which in essence pits employees against each other well if it's a competitive and, game right but there there are cooperative games too is that well yes but taking that idea of gamification you know it can't just be applied to everything and i think that there has been a significant downside because then it be, it, it it says I have to get the epic win, and then that becomes the measure of my quality of work or my success. Uh-huh. And if I if I'm the person who isn't getting that, and and these are places where you know you have like the high score leaderboard kind of things. They would place that with all the employees and every day show who is ranked where, mm. uh, and you know if you meet a certain milestone or do a certain thing or get a certain thing done or whatever, it's like moving you up and down, and you get these badges and everything else. But making it so gamified, I think, takes away the cooperative aspect. And and I don't think that the 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 mentality towards gamification is really focused on a cooperative element. It's focused on the competitive element and the win. Mm. And, and it tends to fall to the individual win rather than the group or the team win. Well, you yeah, we see that a lot in... in sales organizations where they keep score. I mean, that's a very easy place in historically in, in commerce where it's easy to keep score because it's really just how much, how many sales did you make or how much revenue did you generate? And that for sure has some 
negative consequences. You know that those kind of environments can be pretty. Well, and I'll, and so I'll give you an example of the opposite of that is Apple when they open their Apple retail stores, and they still do this today. Um, you know, Apple employees in the retail stores they're not based on commission, so they actually tend to be more customer service oriented. They will be more honest in helping someone find what it is that they are looking for or need rather than try to sell them something that they don't need just because they want to get a higher commission or, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. And I, I think that illustrates that you could you could try to make a point that that gamification idea of pitting people against each other, even in a sales environment, is a good thing. But I think that we see it contributes to a much more negative loss of ethics and empathy and compassion the more something gets gamified, mm. which I know is going against what you got out of seeing that woman talk. <laughs> well, but, you know, I think but, I think you get, you know, when you, when you gamify something, you get what you optimize the game for. You get more of what you optimize the game around. But I think the difference for what she was doing is it was all very individual oriented. It was it was me playing the game and, and doing these different things rather than I'm doing this in competition against somebody else. Right. You yeah. know, it's like one of the things you had people do, you know, was like hold their arms up in the air for 60 seconds or something like that. Right. And it and it wasn't, you know, hold your arms up in the air and we're going to see who can hold their arms up the longest. It was having everybody do the same thing. So it's more about the individual achievement rather than the doing this to win against Right. someone or something else. Yeah. And I think that's an important component of if we're going to look at how we approach things in our life as a game, don't look at it as a competition or pitting yourself against or in comparison to other people versus doing it so that you can bring an element of fun and intrigue and excitement and that kind of an adventure into what you're doing without there having to be consequences. Mm. Right. Yeah, I agree with with High C. And as he was speaking, a, a comment that was made to me maybe about a month ago came back, and someone said to me, "Mildred, let everything to you was a game," mm -hmm. and it wasn't meant as something negative. It was meant as something that was curious, leaning towards the positive. And when you were speaking, John and High C, I was saying to myself, "I think I'm already in that gamification mode," <laughs> <laughs> because. It becomes very useful when you're dealing with the mundane or if you're dealing with another person in the context of the mundane to help you raise the vibration, make it a little bit more fun, intriguing, creative. And, and an example would be, let's say, um, maybe someone is ailing and they're on the recovery route, but they're not feeling good about how they look or how their body is for whatever reason. And my solution to that would be to do a nice little photo shoot and use different positions. It's a visual creativity vibration that, that you're working on and you're able to mirror back to the person how lovely they do look in a different context. 
and you make a game out of it. Let's try this angle. Let's try that angle. And what I found is that even with very difficult mundane, I keep getting mundane, 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 very difficult mundane situations. There's always a way through playing a little game with yourself or the person that you can raise the vibration and take it to another area. And and it's a cooperation between the two people or more. And it is very satisfying and fulfilling and hopeful. So that's been my experience with it. So now, I've, I've learned a new word, gave, gamification. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, well, with that in mind, in your experience of gamification and gamifying your your life yes. and your and your as you say mundane experiences what what is the what's the thing that that you the the key moment when it becomes a game do you know what i mean it's like yes. you're doing yes. something and then after you've done this magical thing it's a game but what's the magical thing that you do that brings the game into being what where and and where is that happening in your in like in your body or in your mood or like what is it that turns it into a game for me it's inviting yourself or a person to look at it from a different perspective uh, and it's like hey it's it's new i never thought about it like that and is that is that invitation to is is there a particular kind of perspective that you have to 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 use to make it a game or is fun. It fun. What would be fun? This would be fun, or this would be something new. Fun. It's in a, it's in the joyful realm. What the heck is fun, Lillian? Come on, you got to give me something better than that. <laughs> but I, 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 I think that if it's if if you're if you're approaching or making something into a game, fun means that you you stop taking it quite so seriously, and that doing it doesn't create stress and anxiety, versus it allows you to just be part of the process and experience the process and maybe that ex- that process will take you out of the normal way you might do something which is the creativity aspect but i think that the the, the game aspect seems to help move out of stress anxiety uh and and uh worry uh and it allows you to just to just do it and see what comes out of it so okay so it it's it's fun it's the, the the choice to make something fun is in some way the choice to relinquish the idea that something has to be serious or that there are there are negative consequences to doing it a certain way right because so, it also adds an element of mystery because that creativity part that Milder was talking about brings mystery in which says <gasps> I wonder what would happen if I did it this way, because it may be a way we've never done it before. So we don't know how that's going to look or how it's going to turn out. And so you have that mystery that we get to go into and kind of discover rather than just like when people say I can do this in my sleep. You know, that's not really fun. That just means I can do this without thinking about it. But that means I'm not really fully engaged in it. Mm, Interesting stuff. Okay. Um, so I mean, Mildred, then you kind of already shared with us, but I want to I want to ask again uh, as we as we sort of wrap up. What's an example of introducing a game into an environment that might not be that would that that we wouldn't ordinarily think of as being available to a game. Well, I think you can take any situation, John. I think it's more about the perspective. 
And you would introduce it by saying, have you ever thought about this? Or wouldn't it be fun if we tried that? Or let's look at it a different way for a minute. Let's try a pilot project. So it's more, from from my perspective, it's more about introducing a concept for people's consideration that's off the, the road. It's out of the box. And part of that is communicated through your enthusiasm or your courage, your willingness to give it a try. So you become very persuasive. Mm. And it's almost as if people say, oh, yeah, okay, I'd like to try that. I never thought about it that way. And when you were asking before, where does it impact the body? I can only speak to my body. But it impacts my body in the heart chakra. It, it's I'm in a joyful, heart-centered place when we're playing this game. And to speak to what Hi-C had alluded to before about the strategy, coming up with the game, monitoring the game, moving the game along is very strategic mm. because you don't necessarily know where the great game is going itself, but you have to be very present and become one with the game. Mm. That's great, Marilyn. Thank you. Um, see. any thoughts? Well, I think that taking taking an everyday thing, so for example, let's say that you you get to work at the same time as somebody else, somebody you know, um, uh, generally every day you get to work at the same time, you come into the lobby and you get on the elevator and you go up to your, you know, fifth floor office and, and that's kind of the routine. And then, you know, people will complain that they need to exercise more. So here you could make it a game. And and so when you show up with the friend on one day, you say, okay, you take the elevator. I'm going to take the stairs and I'm going to see if I can get up to the fifth floor faster than you can on the elevator. Mm -hmm. There's no downside to that. I mean, I I suppose if you weigh 400 pounds and are a heavy smoker, there might be a downside (laughs) to doing those steps. But, uh, you know, there's no downside. There's not going to be a negative consequence whether you get up there before or after the person on the elevator. You still both get to work <laughs> and, you know, it's still the same thing. And then like the next day you can switch off and then you can start to add other elements to it. You know, it's like, OK, we've been doing that for a while. So now let's say, uh, OK, I'm going to see if I can do it by skipping every other step uh, or what, you know, whatever elements you decide to bring into it to 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 go to the next level that's always in games you know you always do something and then you get to go to the next level and unlock the next level mm. um you know or or you you don't tell the person that you have told somebody else to be coming down the steps at the same time and to try to get in their way <laughs> you know so it's it's that surprise element that you come across in the game that becomes another little obstacle that you have to kind of get around so so you can bring that idea of games into anything and the more you do it in in these mundane situations the more you start to develop a an, an attitude of how to approach things in a game like way without having to see it as a win at all costs or negative consequences if i don't win or accomplish what it is i'm setting out to do it just adds another element of enjoyment creativity unexpectedness to something that might otherwise just be very rote. Mm, yeah. Well, that's uh, I'm I'm fascinated to explore this further and see how how I can cultivate the uh, the skill and the discipline and the desire 
to make games more present in my life by making more of my life available to games. And, uh, you know, that's at, at work and away from work. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. So uh, with that, I want to thank my two co-hosts, Mildred Lynn and Hi C. You guys are fabulous. You're always great teachers for me. Uh, so thanks for joining me on today's roundtable. Have a great show, John. Thanks, John. And we'll be right back. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us. Host a show or be a guest or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me for today's spirited conversation is Kimberly Walters. Kimberly is a cultural anthropologist who studies Telugu speakers in South India. That's Telugu is a, is a language of, of South India. She's just completed her dissertation defense in the Department of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. She recently joined the faculty at Cal State University Long Beach in the International Studies Program. Kimberly's doctoral research focused on the cultural politics of the labels sex work and sex trafficking in southern India. So, Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thank you. Delighted to be here. This is a really powerful topic. I mean, it's it's interesting because we don't usually talk about this kind of this part of our culture. It's challenging because we don't talk about it. Uh, and it's frightening because of the implications that it has for both the people involved in that industry and what we do about it as, I'll say, as moralists approaching it from the outside. And I know that for me, it's challenging material, and I imagine that it was uh, was challenging material for you as well. What motivated you to to start to take on this study? Interestingly, it just sort of fell in my lap. There was this era where there was a lot of money going for HIV/AIDS research, in, especially in um, the third world, but in India particularly, and. Because HIV-AIDS rates were highest among Telugu speakers in South India, there was a large group of researchers who were funded by the Gates Foundation who were looking for people who speak Telugu and who understand social science research who could join their team. And through the grapevine, they heard about me because, as you can imagine, there are not too many anthropologists who speak Telugu and who work in that region. So... They came to me and explained their research largely about HIV-AIDS, but with female sex workers. And I had, up to that date, I had done work largely on religion. I did work on um, a group of seasonal ascetics in South India. And I did work on Christian converts in South India. 
So my, my, um, my work until then was very different from um, what they were doing. It was also quite ethnographic, whereas their work was much more sociological, much more driven by different sets of methods than my own work was. So um, I was at first, you know, a little bit nervous about doing something that I thought was going to be out of my comfort zone, both methodologically and also in terms of topics. But as soon as I agreed to join uh, them in their research and got going on the project, I never looked back. I cannot say that I had a single dull moment. <laughs> oh, okay. I can imagine. Um, so you were you were already in South India? I had already done research in South India. I was oh. at the University of Chicago and traveling back and forth um, doing field work there for various projects. And I was actually about to begin a different project altogether um, when they came forward with the proposal that I work with their team and do my own ethnographic work at the same time. And after working with them for about a year, I shifted and started to do my own project on sex workers in a different city than they were working in. They worked in a city called Rajmandri. So um, they got me started and then I continued on um, doing methods that were more comfortable for me and that I felt were better tuned to the questions that I wanted to answer. So this is interesting because it sounds to me like you chose to look at it ethnographically uh, because there was something perhaps malformed about the sociological premise that was being brought to the problem. I'm not certain that it's the, the premise that was problematic so much as the methods themselves in terms of the kinds of things that I wanted to understand. So that as I watched uh, the sociologists and their team roll out these massive surveys um, among you know hundreds and hundreds of sex workers in South India, I found that the kinds of interactions that those encounters allowed with sex workers were so limited and so snapshot that there was just so much missing. Mm-hmm. And there was also the problem of translation in that the ways that the sociologists were thinking about the kinds of questions they wanted to ask did not necessarily translate well into the kinds of notions that the sex workers themselves already held. And so they had, there was this very interesting disjunct between the researchers and their their subjects that had to be bridged by the, um, the survey investigators that they hired right. the translation for them. And there was a lot of, um, honestly, sloppiness in the, the kind of translation that the research investigators would do so that they, their, the research investigators' purpose was just to get a survey finished as opposed to really understand a woman, mm. really make a connection with her really get a sense of her life. And so the kinds of questions that they would ask, the way they would bend the questions that the sociologists put forward so that they could get a particular kind of answer out of a sex worker made me rather uncomfortable. In, in the sense that it... it wasn't it, accurate. Ultimately, ultimately not accurate. Well, it's accurate in a particular way in that you can you can um, do it again and again and again. Um, but it, it wasn't accurate in some ways and it also wasn't it just was a very, very thin picture of these women's lives. So um, I, I wanted to get 
I wanted to dig in. I wanted the richness of their lives. And so the only way to really do that in, in my opinion is through ethnography. So I spent a year and a half in one location, six months in another location, and tried to get to know both sex workers and also the organizations that reach out to them. So that my ethnography ultimately is not an ethnography of sex work in South India. It's much more an ethnography of humanitarianism as it attempts to interact with sex work in South India. Okay, so I want to go in both directions here. I want to, I want you to share with us, uh, if you can, some of the the details of the contrast that you became sensitive to when you realized these surveys were not actually getting to the depth of the experience of these women's lives. What was what were some of the things that you said, okay, this survey thing is not working because blah. Right, right. So um because they were because surveys just ask um standard questions and want an answer that they can fill into a bubble, it prompts women to speak in terms of social scripts as opposed to thinking creatively or thinking deeply about their own lives. So that women tend to answer a question like, why do you, why do you do sex work? With very pat answers. Mm. Instead of what they say, credible question, which means I do it for my stomach. But it's the kind of answer that masks other aspects of their lives, like the fact that women who had master's degrees would tell me, credible question, meaning I do it for my stomach, despite the fact that this is a woman coming from a um, an educated background, who comes from a high caste background, who could potentially be doing something else, you would think, but she's using the exact same words to describe her situation as a much poorer woman um, that you could you maybe predict would tell you something like, I do it for my stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, so to understand the differences, to understand why a woman with master's degree is saying to me credible quotes in the same way that um, a very underprivileged woman is saying that a survey wouldn't really allow anyone to get at those kinds of differences. So class differences. Also, women who, I, I found that women who speak to researchers within institutional settings tend to use the rhetoric of those institutions mm-hmm. yeah. because that's the setting. Because they feel um they feel somewhat obligated to, but also because that's the um that's the ethos of the moment around them. Right. So that um speaking to them elsewhere in other kinds of settings and in other kinds of contexts will give you a whole new picture on to why they would say the kinds of things they would say in that that in the institutional setting. Mm. Other kinds of um, nuances to their lives become much more vivid and come to life differently if you, you know, if you speak to them, observe them in other contexts. So share some of that, some of that depth. What what came alive for you when you when and what surprised you? There was a, well, one of this is slightly um, taking the conversation in, in a different turn, but one of the things that most surprised me and that ultimately was the driving question of my education search was um, a change that took place in the organization that I mostly focused on. So that um, in the early 2000s, when the Gates Foundation came in and 
flooded South India with money for HIV-AIDS prevention. They rolled out a kind of program that encouraged women to start their own collectives of sex workers called community-based organizations. And they encouraged an identification with the international label of sex worker, which brought with it um, an entire set of politics that understands sex work to be a form of legitimate labor that ought to be at least decriminalized, if not legalized, and that a set of politics that advocates that women should not be stigmatized for this work and should not be um, discriminated against, either socially or legally. And so I was fascinated to watch women who had been trained and steeped in the politics of sex work. Then later, when the Gates Foundation left South India, when they closed their doors, shuttered the shop, um, of many of the organizations that they had been funding, talked about for other kinds of funding. And one organization that had a very charismatic leader, has still a very charismatic leader, started to look for funding from the anti-trafficking movement as opposed to sex workers' rights movement. And that was the biggest surprise, really, of my dissertation research was watching a group of women whom I had initially seen as advocates and as mouthpieces for the sex workers' rights movement shift their their ways of speaking, their ways of interacting with the media as they began to accept money from and to search for money from people who are concerned with sex trafficking, which takes a very different view of the exchange of sex for money. Uh, there are a great many sex trafficking advocates, I should say anti-trafficking advocates, who feel that all sex work is a form of exploitation and that there is no legitimate form of sex work, that sex work in and of itself is a form of gender exploitation, so that any individual transaction between uh, a man and a woman that involves exchange of money and sex is part of a larger system and process of patriarchy that ultimately harms women. So that must have been, at the very least, an intriguing contrast for you. And what did your, what did the facts on the ground, I mean, aside from your research, right, aside from the, the actual, uh, the discipline of your research, what did the facts on the ground how do they insinuate themselves into your perspective on sex work? Like, is it, is it is it exploitation or is it freedom? Right. Well, it's not either or. I would say with, as of any industry, it's how you structure it and the, the ways that you allow for particular kinds of interactions or disallow particular kinds of interactions that makes it either exploitative or not. That's, that's my, um, that's my take on it. Again, there are, uh, radical feminists who would disagree. Again, they, they would, as I just mentioned, they would counter that any form of, um, purchase of sex is the purchase of a female body. Whereas there are many researchers of sex work who 
would say that, in fact, it's not a woman's body that you're purchasing or not domination of a woman's body that you're purchasing, but rather um, sexual services, that it's something akin to, um, in many cases, something akin to buying a massage or buying... Um, and some anthropologists go so far as to um, liken it to buying therapy, actually, because I think it's quite a fascinating um, idea. But so there, there's no question that it's possible to structure the exchange of sex such that it is highly exploitative. It's also possible to structure the exchange of sex for money such that it looks like other kinds of service industries. So you can go out and find exploitation. You can also go out and find um, something that looks very similar to other kinds of other kinds of legitimate businesses. Yeah. And there's not a there's not a uh, yes or no answer to that question. So where do where do we um, come from in the West? Uh, we struggle with this idea of sex work being a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. Uh, and I think you know probably for a variety of reasons, including religious acculturation and. You know, the notion of morality and uh, or the taboos that we've established and so on and so forth. So what's, what's the moral quandary for us as as moralists, really? I mean, we're coming into another culture with with good intention, in theory. Yeah. Um, how, what do we do? You mean as humanitarians? Yeah, as humanitarians. Well, um, <laughs> there are some people who would say, that humanitarianism itself is misguided, that we should be refocusing our efforts if what we, as moralists, as um, humans who are engaged in creating a better planet, if what, we, if what we want to accomplish is an increase of good in the lives of people who are very far away from us, that our energies should be focused at home where we can help restructure international relations as opposed to abroad where international relations already create a hierarchical relationship between us and the people that we are attempting to help. It's the, it's the, the, the devastation of colonialism, right? The artifacts of colonialism. Right, that there is a great deal of continuity between um, colonialism and our current version of humanitarianism. So that, that's one answer. In terms of the specifics of our concern for young girls or women who are being exploited by the sex industry in places like India, you know, what are the best ways for us to help them, it's it's a very tricky question. I don't think that I have yet seen a program or a mode of sending money from, you know, sending resources from the West to someplace like India that accomplished specific good in the lives of women on the street. For the most part, what happens with most of these organizations that go abroad to fix problems like sex trafficking, for example, is that they create money that goes from here, resources, interest, 
worry energy that goes from here to there get sucked up by the middlemen, by those who know how to tell donors what they want to hear without necessarily affecting the change on the ground that donors would like to see. But I think also part of the problem here is that donors don't necessarily know what they want to see on the ground of India because they don't necessarily they don't necessarily understand the intricacies of the legal system or the social system there to to know what would what women themselves would want for themselves. So can you explain, I, I, I would like for you to spend a, uh, a few minutes, uh, be generous with the detail mm-hmm. here. What is it that they want? What is it that the women, the sex workers in South India and the, and the nature of their lives, what is their notion of an improved life? life? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, that I think is the most fascinating question of all and the most problematic for those of us here in the West who maybe have a very different notion of what the good life is. So that I would say the majority of sex workers that I got to know personally and any, any sort of, any sort of fashion where I could, you know, really have a hold on some aspects of their life. I would say that the most, most of them don't actually find the politics of sex work to resonate with their own moral. That's to say, they themselves would not want to see their own daughters in sex work. That's not to say that they themselves would want, are in a position to lead sex work, or would advocate, you know, for the criminalization or what is already in place in India, the, the criminalization of their their work or the work of the people who work with them. But because, again, this is, this is what I think is so complex for us, particularly for feminists here, I think that most sex workers that I know in Hyderabad, for example, would wish to have the life of a normal Indian housewife. The majority of them wish that they had husbands who could earn enough money to support them and keep them at home and allow them a life that looks something like the lives of women on soap operas in India. Mm-hmm. Okay. And of course, there are some sex worker organizations in India who take uh, issue with what I'm about to say. Um, DMSC, uh, an organization in Calcutta, for example, they've been very effective at bringing change in India along the lines of the sex workers' rights politics. So that they, um, there are many women who uh, are members of that organization who would actually ask for um, the legitimization of their work and ask for the destigmatization of their work. But the majority of the women that I met in Hyderabad, they, they, they think of legalization of sex work as leading to moral chaos, actually. So that they had a very different take on you know, what would be the good life for them ultimately if they could stick their finger into politics and just mix things up. They had a very different um, take on what that would mean than what perhaps I would have done myself for myself. So the problem for Indian sex workers is that 
the majority of them do it because they have so few other options. The way that labor is structured in India, the way that gendered labor is structured in India, means that even women who are educated, even women who have come from middle-class backgrounds, sometimes even more than middle-class backgrounds, can't find jobs that will allow them to support themselves in the face of being widowed, in the face of having husbands who don't work or having husbands who can't earn enough money to support a family or in the face of moving to a new city where the um, economics of day-to-day living demand much higher wages than are currently available to, to women at all, women generally, and to most working-class men as well. So their sex work offers women at least three times the pay that, say, working as an elementary school teacher offers. So the sex work becomes a necessity for women who not just want to get ahead, but even for women who want to get by. So that you can't really think of it as a choice in the way that advocates of um, sex work politics would like it to ultimately become, they would, I think most um, sex work advocates would like women to be able to choose sex work if they find that work appealing. But that is not the reality of the sex industry in India right now. Women don't go into it because they enjoy the idea of giving and receiving sexual pleasure they go into it because there is not other labor available to them that makes it possible to survive. So with that in mind, asking, you know, what women want, I think first and foremost, women would want a restructured labor economy where there is the possibility of surviving on other kinds of labor. If we're going to you know, make sex work a choice, then it has to be a choice among other choices. Right. It's not a choice. Um, so I think that would be first and foremost, would be entirely upending the structure of labor in India. And that would require, again, an upending of labor relations globally as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Which is why I say that you know, it's, it's a bit wrong-headed of us here in the U.S. to send money to India to try and support victims of sex trafficking when it's a global system that actually creates the need to enter the sex market in India. Wow. Okay. So um, challenging circumstances, uh, I think we can reasonably say that Globally, we have this, and historically, we have this challenge of matching skills and desires, you know, for the fulfillment of the human soul in in exercising its agency in the world with the market's demand for that. Uh, right. And, yeah. and we struggle generally uh, to find fulfilling work. I suspect that at least many of us, if not most of us, end up doing work that isn't fulfilling 
Correct, right. And so in one sense, we can say that sex work is just another element on the continuum of things that we do because it allows us to, you know, we do it for our stomachs in some sense, but it isn't necessarily what we would prefer. And and yet there's something there's something about sex work that we choose to stigmatize differently than other kinds of labor. Yes. Why? Well, I think and that's an excellent question. But I goes to the very root of society, to be honest. I think it goes to the micro blocks with which we build any culture, any society. And that basic microblock is the relations between men and women and the possibility for reproduction and for the generation of new life and a new set of humans. So, Okay, so I have a feeling that we're going to go deep here. And what I'd like to do is take a short break, and then when we come back, we're going to dig into this some more. Okay. okay. All right. We'll be right back. You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella, in spirited conversation with Kimberly Walters, cultural anthropologist and uh, examiner of uh, sex work and sex trafficking in South India. And before the break, Kimberly, I asked, this is, you know, in a lot of ways, this is just another form of labor that might not be entirely fulfilling to the practitioner, but it is a way of making a living. And the question is, why is this particular kind of work stigmatized so much more than other kinds of labor? So I think the easy answer to that is that it's because men want to know, and I, I'm talking about this in terms of the species, the human species. Men want to know whether or not the offspring of a woman are theirs or not. Mm-hmm. The investment into children is so intense for our species because we have such a lengthy childhood that requires the input of so many adults in order to bring a child into adulthood that men want a certainty about whether or not they are the biological father of the children that um, of, of a particular woman. Yeah, because they're investing in that, right? So they want to know. Right. They want to know that that return on their on investment is actually a return on their genetic investment. Exactly. Um, so ultimately, I think that cultures that have created a stigma around women's sexuality have done so in order to create the kinds of lines that would allow men to distinguish between a sure bet and a not-so-sure bet. And, you know, various cultures have done this differently across the globe, but those that really have invested in 
what I would call a purity model and idealize women for the chastity for their loyalty to one particular man to monogamy have have created cultures in which you know, sex work is particularly stigmatized. Um, that's not true everywhere. Uh, women who own their sexuality rather than have their sexuality owned by groups or by men uh, or by their larger families, it's not universal, nor is it um, the only way for us to think about uh, a way forward in our own culture. And clearly, that's not where we're headed, I think, as we disentangle female sexuality from reproduction through all of the technology that we've created in the last few decades, I think we will continue to see that our culture evolves along with that so that we no longer necessarily equate a woman's child and a woman's partner, you know, with a father relationship, per se, a biological father relationship. I think men will become more and more willing to invest in um, children that are not and have become already more willing to invest in children that are not theirs biologically. I think we're con- continuing to evolve with that that change. But we, you know, we come from a, a history of that kind of stigmatization because all of the need to invest in offspring um, over decades, really, so that women who participate in non-monogamous relationships are a threat to a system that men are invested in. And do you think they're a do you think they're a threat to the system at a different scale than they're a threat to the genetic interests of the men that are the counterparts in those relationships? In other words, is the system driving this stigma or is it the biology driving the stigma? I think they're interwoven so that the um the biology has driven the system for generations. And what we're seeing now is decoupling of that link between biology and a cultural system. Um, we're starting to see that now, but it's still, I mean, it still pervades the majority of culture all over the world. But women today who are able to own a politics of sex work and to take pride in their labor as their labor of offering sexual services, I think they've, they have been able to disentangle themselves from that system that is driven by biology precisely because of the technologies that um, they have at their disposal now. So in terms of you know, birth control and in terms of um, cultural technologies as well, in terms of divorce and in terms of a society that's more and more willing to remove sexuality from reproduction. Now, so there's across uh, history, there's been cultures that have had, I guess, a courtesan class Right, yeah, social hierarchy that includes includes courtesans as valued members, uh, appreciated members. How does that play? I mean, they, they didn't have technologies. They didn't have birth control in the same sense that we do. I mean, they might have had certain kinds of uh, herbal techniques and so on. Uh, but how does the... What, how does that play in? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're very, very right that um, in many cultures, including the the one where I work among um, Telugu people, um, courtesans 
which are called, have been called Devdasis or Notch Girls in um, South India, uh, that they can and very often did in the past um, amass great wealth. They were often educated. They were often even politically powerful in some cases. But uh, as a group, they were still separated and distinguished from good women. Mm-hmm. So that you were born to a courtesan caste or you you were given to a courtesan caste and that then distinguished you from normal society. So that although there was you know there's a great benefit to um, being educated, being wealthy, you were still stigmatized in many ways. You were not um, ritually stigmatized. Very interestingly, in South India, um, Devdasis are ritually auspicious because women who lose their husbands are considered inauspicious, are considered sort of a black mark socially. Courtesans who don't marry and therefore cannot lose their husbands and cannot become widows are considered particularly auspicious. They're considered um, to have sort of magical powers and they are have been in the past asked to come and participate in all sorts of interesting um, rituals like planting rice every year or in people's weddings or in temples. So that they, the Protestant cats in South India were highly respected ritually and highly respected artistically in terms of their their abilities in dance and in poetry and in other kinds of literature and music. But they were always distinct. And mm. men did not marry courtesans in, in any sort of meaningful way. Courtesans could have influence on local rulers, but they were never incorporated into uh, social life in the same way that other women were. So they were always distinct. It's interesting. It's, it strikes me that that the distinction between a courtesan who has control over her sexuality and the the energy, the shakti energy, the the expressive energy of sexuality, yeah. and is not obligated to assign that energy to contractually through right. marriage to a man. Mm-hmm. is viewed as auspicious for reasons of fertility, which is very interesting because they were not the ones that were invested in for the purpose of reproduction. Mm-hmm. So, right. so, they're, so they're a separate caste or class, a creative class, and a privileged class that has privileges that, that relate to all kinds of matters except reproduction. Mm-hmm. Right, reproduction of generation specifically. Right. Wow, that, that is that is a pretty interesting way of splitting the female energy. That's a fascinating take on it. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that way. But now I need to be a little bit more specific in that there are there were and are many different kinds of devdasis in South India. And devasis and slash courtesans slash notch girls, um, so that it's a little bit difficult to speak in generalities. There are still today certain kinds of devasis 
in um, some areas that will only take one man their entire life. They are not recognized as his as his wife per se. They're rec- but they are recognized. And they're as- his mistress, long term mistress. Yes, uh huh. But they, those women still have the um, auspicious status that allows them to um, participate in temple rites and in agricultural rituals um, and in marriage rituals that um, as as ritual specialists. But they're not expected to bear children, I imagine. Well, they do very often end up bearing children. Those children are their children. Uh, there's one, um, as opposed to being recognized as the children of the men who fathered them biologically. But one very fascinating thing about some forms of Devdasi is that in Karnataka, on the border of Andhra Pradesh, where I did my work, and into Andhra Pradesh as well, there are devotees of the goddess Yelama who become socially male, actually, so that they take on the male role in their kinship structure and are able to do things like marry their daughters to the sons of their sisters, whereas structurally they ought to be marrying their daughters to the sons of their brothers. They inhabit a um, like a socially male role in their local communities. They're still spoken of as women and talked about as women, but they are able to hold land and inherit land from their parents in ways that other women are not allowed to. And they're allowed to pass on that wealth and pass on that land to their children so that they actually, because they are not married to a man, they become men in a way. They become, even though technically they are the wives of the goddess, they take on a male role in their local communities. Okay, and yeah, that's that. Is, boy, there's so many, so many layers of gender and, right. and gender power. Gender, you know, the the energy that moves through gender and gender politics in in culture is fascinating. Do they do these women who end up inheriting or claiming the mantle of the man's role? Uh, how do they how do they own and relate to their sexuality? Many of them who never leave the village will have one male partner their entire life. Some of them end up disliking that partner and choosing another, which they're free to do as um, Dasis. They they needn't be tied to one man the same way that a woman who's married to that man is. Some of them end up going to big cities and looking essentially like sex workers, um, working in brothels, working the streets, and bringing money home to their villages. But um, if you're asking, does that change their sense of sexual orientation or their their sense of um, you know, potential life partners, the, the general answer is no. But something that I found, found quite fascinating that I'm hoping to study when I go back to India in the future is that there are some sex workers, female sex workers in India who do end up having romantic relationships with each other. Eventually, and that seems to be also something that's not uncommon here in the U.S. as well. So that somehow untethering yourself from the sexual expectations of a typical housewife or of a married wife 
allows for some sexual play that can lead you down very different paths, ultimately. So I think I think that's where you were going with the question, am I right? Well, actually, it wasn't where I was going, but it's a fascinating reveal anyway. I, what I just heard you say was that these women have they have free agency and they take free agency. It's not just that it's an option for them, but that they inhabit that free agency and they don't have shame about it. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's what I think what's quite fascinating about it. So um, the woman whose work I'm referring to when I talk about this group um, of Yelaman devotees, her name is Lucinda Romberg. And the way that her, she's an anthropologist who works in Connecticut, and the way that her informants explain it to her is that unlike the other women in the village, they are like the bulls, the male bulls who wander the village and eat what they want, where they want to eat, and go where they want to go when they want to go. So that they are not, again, that they are untethered, that they are untied from the domestic constraints that would keep other women at home. So I imagine two things. One, that there must be some pretty significant social pressure for women to not become devotees of Yelama. Uh, and two, that the men would completely freak out if there was a, a sudden rush to that shrine. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly, families will sometimes dedicate their daughters to Yelama to become her wife, specifically because they have no son to whom they can pass on their wealth and their land. Ah. Lacking a male heir, some families will actually take a daughter and turn her into a man turn her into a man just socially in terms of her social status mm, right. you and can't do by um, dedicating her and marrying her to the goddess Yelama. So that's, that's one way that a woman becomes um, a devotee of, and a wife of Yelama. Um, there are also interestingly men who are dedicated to Yelama. And that's usually more something that the men themselves want to do. They they have, very often they have some sort of problem that they need to overcome, that they make a promise to the goddess that if she fulfills their wishes, if she removes their problem, that they will dedicate themselves to her and become one of her wives. They don't, again, the men do not become, because Yalem is female, the men do not become, they, they, do not be, they don't become a husband somehow, they become wives, both women and men can dedicate themselves to Yelama. So that it's not just women. It is mostly women, but it's not just women. Other women, it's largely uh, families who need some sort of male support. They need to demarcate a woman as being their continued family member as opposed to being able to lose her to another family through marriage. Ah, right. Um, that will dedicate their daughter to Yelama. There's also women who feel compelled, who feel drawn to it, who, who desire that role in their lives, who seek it out. But it's more common that a family needs to keep a daughter in the family. They need her to be able to assume male social roles, and so they dedicate her to that. And uh, and that sounds like a pretty good deal. Well, in the sense that um, they get to live 
very different lives than other women do. Yeah, I think that the women themselves, at least according to this ethnography by Alyssa I think the women who, um, who live as they've doctors do prefer their lives to what they see happening to other women around them. But, interestingly, they have become the targets of humanitarian labor uh, that see them as oppressed because they have been dedicated to sex work, what they see as sex work, as opposed to seeing it as um, a different social status for women that allows them to also have more than one sexual partner. Uh, usually these humanitarian organizations that go in and target these women, these devices, see them just as being dedicated to sex work. And so they sort of uh, shear away the other aspects of these women's lives. This is really complicated terrain. It is. <laughs> but so these women then ha- become the targets of humanitarians who want to convince them that their lives are problematic and that they are oppressed. And not just them, they want to convince the larger community. So that progressives within the community, I say that in with air quotes around it, people who want to see change in their community and have been convinced by the larger international humanitarian community that there's a problem with dedicating women to Yelema, to being Devdasis. They then um, have created a new stigma for Devdasis that did not previously exist. Isn't that amazing? Holy cow. are men in the community uh, who feel who feel strongly that it does not does not speak well of India that there is such a thing as the a system where women can be dedicated to the goddess of Yelama and can become sexually untethered and they then end up trying to convince women who are sexually untethered these devasis that they should give up their role as devasis and they should come back to quote the good life come back to a sort of normal morality that is essentially funded by transnational humanitarians. So it's it's a very complex set of social processes that are going on right now, but that are highly tied to what it is that we think of here as being problems or not problems. Right? That if we, we hear that women are being forced by their families to um, be Dave Dossies, and then we end up funding organizations that go around spreading the news that this is a problem in India, then we actually do create social change on the ground in India where people start to think that this is a problem and start to stigmatize it socially. So there are quite a few women in India who have given up their status as Dave Dossies in this area, specifically because they feel that they're it embarrasses their children or embarrasses their larger families that they are living this life that is considered oppressed by um, large humanitarian organizations. So is it oppression? Okay, is the message that gets through mm-hmm. one of you are an oppressed class mm-hmm. or is the message that you are shamed? The message that comes through from largely, again, this is, again, speaking in, in generalities, uh, the message that comes through from transnational humanitarian organizations is largely that this is a form of female oppression, hmm. that by dedicating women to 
to be Dave Dossies, we are oppressing them. That's one of the messages that comes through it. The other aspect of this, to be honest, is that many of the organizations that take it upon themselves to right the wrongs of Dave Dossies are Christian. And they find this form of Hinduism and this form of sexuality to be um, problematic. So that much of the humanitarian labor that's taking place in South India is carried out by Christians who have very specific ideas as to what could possibly be moral, ultimately. All right. It's not, it's, you know, it's, it's transnational politics, but it's also transnational Christian politics, and then it's, that interweaves with local politics. But the, um, so it's oppression from the feminists, and it is also oppression from Christian feminists, but with a different sort of flavor to it. Wow. Jesus, a million things that I could, I, and we're almost out of time too. Let's let's ask, what are your your big takeaways from from your experience there in terms of the what's the next chapter in this story? How does it turn out? Hmm. Well, there are competing forces right now in places like India. There are groups that are working very diligently toward um, sex worker politics and are attempting to not only decriminalize, but in some cases legalize sexless. Um, if things go in that direction, if the Indian Supreme Court uh, allows that to take place and the, the laws begin to change in India, I think that ultimately sex work, the sex industry, could become a safer place for women that as women are able to come out of the shadows and as they are able to access legal systems and policing systems that other citizens are able to access, that their lives could become significantly safer. There is evidence from places like Australia and New Zealand that as we not only decriminalize but also legalize prostitution and sex work, that we actually decrease rape of sex workers, we decrease battery of sex workers, and we allow women greater control over their working conditions, the hours that they work, what happens with their money, whether or not it goes primarily to them or whether or not it goes primarily to um, the middleman. Um, all of that becomes improved when we decriminalize and even legalize sex work. So I think that's one big takeaway, that places like India could actually benefit from that kind of structural change, that kind of legal change. That's one big takeaway. Um, I think that despite the fact that that is a fairly well-researched conclusion, what that does not tell us is what would happen culturally in places like India, what would happen socially if we change legal structures, whether or not women would then identify with their labor in different ways, whether or not they would be able to destigmatize their own work, whether or not they would be able to feel morally comfortable about their own work. And my intuition is that this seems unlikely in the near future, that the sex workers that I know, despite really 
liking many aspects of their work, liking the money that they get from the work, liking some of the flirtatious interactions that they have with men, enjoying the fact that they don't have to go to work at a certain hour and don't have to be on a factory floor for 10 hours in a row. Despite the fact that they like the labor itself, they dislike the moral implications and the social implications of what they do. So that there is always this disjuncture between their daily lived experience in the labor itself and their daily lived experience in terms of the broader morality that they share and that resonates with them. So that despite the fact that we might be able to improve their lives through legalization, I think it's an open question, an empirical question as to what will happen in terms of their own morality and their their own sense of stigmatizing their own labor in the long run. And I think that that's actually where I want to focus a great deal of my future research is as things go forward and if India is able to ultimately legalize sex work, what will women who are in the industry already do with that in terms of their own morality, their own sense of what's right and wrong in their life? And I think... Um, it's a little difficult to imagine that things would change very rapidly for them morally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, probably a generational kind of evolution, you know, over time. Perhaps, yeah. So um, we're just about out of time. Are there any, any last thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? I think that this is, I mean, the topic for a longer conversation, but I think that people should step back from the idea that they understand sex trafficking as uh, an empirical phenomenon in places that they know very little about. I think that there should be a great deal of skepticism on their part about what it is that they are actually accomplishing by donating money to organizations that purport to combat sex trafficking in distant places. I think that people sense of what should be accomplished and what ought to be accomplished is better directed at home and that their both their labor and their money and their energy um, should go to improving systems that they understand and systems that they are directly a part of more locally. That would be, uh, again, that's my moralizing take from my research, but we tend to mess with things that we don't understand when we send money very far away and that very often we neglect what's going on right around us. Yeah, think globally, act locally. Precisely. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, uh, I, I look forward to having that, uh, that extended conversation with you uh, perhaps on another show. Wonderful. And so uh, if there, is there a way if for folks that want to learn more about you or your work uh, is there a way for folks to get in touch with you or to, to find you? I have a presence on academia.edu. Uh, so if you go to academia.edu and look up Kimberly Walters, then you can see some of my descriptions of my work and you can watch as I post my uh, articles that are coming out in the next while. And ultimately, the book that I'll be writing will also be available there on academia.edu. Great, great. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed myself. And we'll be right back. 
A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi C at tarotbyhic.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carasala. Okay, so here's another challenging lesson from my journeys. This one is about fly medicine. I'm not sure why I get these interesting and challenging lessons to investigate and integrate, but I do know that once I'm willing to go there, the lessons are fascinating and the opportunity for healing is profound. So let's go there. I was up at a place I call Beltane One, my new sacred space in the Wasatch Mountains, which I had discovered just prior to Beltane this year. I was there to spend some time in contemplation about healing some deep old wounds that were, frankly, stubborn and resistant to my collection of healing tools. I began to recognize these wounds as both shame and trauma related to issues that I had had as a young child. First and second chakra wounds that I think have their root, believe it or not, in the fact that I was severely lactose intolerant at a time when nobody knew what that was. So I was severely constipated and suffered pain and discomfort deep in my qua, my pelvic girdle, my lower gut. Ugh, just thinking about it makes me exhausted. Being a little kid, holed up in the bathroom, uncomfortable and struggling, bored, restless, for what seemed like hours. <sighs> well, okay, so hiking up to Beltane 1 is not easy. The way is steep, and the footing isn't great. It was a hot day, and I was wearing shorts. Now, the vegetation in the Wasatch is arid desert mountain scrub. It's scratchy, low, and stiff. It grazed my arms and legs. By the time I was at my mountain perch, I was hot and sweating. My arms and legs itched from the combination of sweat and contact. I've long wrestled with the purpose and character of the itch. What is it good for? Why do I, and perhaps most people, prefer pain to itchiness? What was the fundamental isomorphism, the great fractal, the resonant harmonic of itch? What was its role in the universe? What I usually do when confronted with a puzzle like this, especially one that I can feel, is to quite literally sit in it, feel it, experience it, and then ask what it reminds me of. It's particularly hard with an itch because the very nature of it is that you don't want to leave it alone. It distracts. It compels action. It forces your attention away from nothingness. And yet it directs your attention to nothingness. There's nothing there. Just the feeling. Just the itch. So I sat and did the best I could. In the arid Utah sun, up on the mountain in the midday heat, there's not a lot of visible animal activity. I have a beautiful view of rocks and vegetation that creates a fabulous tableau of images that 
evoke different kinds of animal and spirit totems, carrying with them access to different medicines and teachings. And the clouds that pass overhead also share their shapes and characters and associated wisdom. But today, surprisingly, it was the real, actual, real-life presence of an animal and its medicine that captured my attention. Today, it was flies. So, I'm sweaty and itchy and uncomfortable. And I guess I smelled like the best shot for action for the local blowflies because I became, at least in my own imagination, center stage for their entertainment and adventure. They were buzzing me and landing on me and walking on me. They were annoying the heck out of me. Just like an itch, but on a larger, more distributed scale. They were an, an air itch. They were an auric field itch. I felt like the flies were a kind of distributed annoyance. But of course, I couldn't leave it at that. It didn't make any sense that the great contribution of the fly spirit was distributed annoyance. So I sat with the itch and the flies. What unfolded was, as usual, both stunningly beautiful and hauntingly appropriate for my condition and my personal needs. You may find this lesson a bit challenging to hear. I find it challenging to share. So I'm sitting there, annoyed by the itching and annoyed by the flies. And I realize that there's a harmonic, a resonance between them. I don't like either one. So I felt into what I didn't like about them. The dislike, the discomfort, it felt similar. Something bothering me that I could not address with my will, nor could remove from my attention. A kind of helplessness in the presence of discomfort, and a natural inclination to anger as a result. What was the discomfort, though, actually? What does an itch feel like? What do buzzing and landing flies feel like? What were they doing to my attention and my physiology and my emotional state? It turns out they were creating in me a desire to get away, to withdraw in whatever way I could from the discomfort. I wanted to shrink from my skin. I wanted to hide from the flies, to insulate myself from the conditions that were surrounding me and impinging on me. And I thought about the flies. Why do I want to shrink from them? I have, I guess as most of us do, internal stories about flies. They're germy, they're gross, they lay eggs on things, and those eggs become maggots. But, But why? Why are they gross? Those arid mountain flies, what were they? They weren't garbage dump flies, they were nature flies. Born and bred in the wild. Part of the natural cycle of things. So what were they up to? What was, what was their perspective on their existence? What was their purpose, their motivation in this character study? What was their raison d'etre? I had to look deeper. I had to look at the adult flies as only a part of the story. There's the egg laying and the egg hatching and the, the maggots. What do maggots do besides gross us out? And perhaps why does what they do gross us out? I sat with that for a bit. Difficult to do, to imagine maggots squirming and rolling and and literally luxuriating in decaying, rotting, necrotic, 
gangrenous tissue. Think about it. Their bodies are literally sensually immersed in and stimulated by the rot. They are drawn to it as surely and as ecstatically as we might be drawn to to silk sheets, a lover, and chocolate-covered strawberries. This is their fulfillment. This is their optimal life. I sat with that for a minute. This is their raison d'etre. They celebrate and luxuriate in decay. The female fly wants the very best for her children. She looks for the best places to deposit her eggs so that her progeny have the best shot at the good life. I had heard in conversation that female flies are opportunistic egg layers, that they will often just drop a couple of eggs wherever they touch down. More reason to find them gross, I know, but stay with me if you can. I, I think that's very likely when there's no obvious gold mine of dead animal matter or damp animal excrement. Remember, flies feed on decay, so they obviously are going to prefer an environment rich in potential for decay. If the decay is already underway, then all the better. But for a female fly ripe with eggs, there's always the trade-off. Wait for the mother load of a rotting corpse or drop a few eggs opportunistically whenever there's a possibility. Any organic animal matter, preferably though not necessarily in the process of decay, is an opportunity. So, this is possibly why adult flies are like an itch. They represent the potential for decay, the opportunistic embrace of the possibility of decay. They're looking for an opportunity to begin the process of scraping away at that which is ripe for scraping. That's what my urge to itch is like. Who wants that around? And who wants to be exploited like that? Well, not me. But anyway, so I begin to look again more deeply into the role of the fly, the opportunistic egg layer, the emergence of the maggot, the trip from the hatched egg to the source of food, the search for decay. But not just any decay. It has to be the right kind of decay. What kind of decay is that exactly? Well, for starters, it has to be organic decay. So it has to be the product of an organic process. And I think there are two kinds worth mentioning. One is the product of digestion, dung, feces. It's a byproduct of the organic process of consumption. What's interesting here is that for the animal that is doing the digesting, there's a great harvest of life energy. Nutrition in the form of trace minerals, organic compounds, and energy sources that literally feed the life force momentum of the digester. It is the extraction of the mechanisms of life. What's left over is eliminated. It's the dead carcass of the biomass that was ingested. As much life as the animal is capable of extracting from it has been extracted. What's left is indigestible, unharvestable by the animal. It has no useful life energy left in it for that animal. So it's a dead thing, or at the very least, a not-alive thing. 
It's organic, but not capable of engineering its own thriving. It's ripe for the exploiter of decay. The other organic process that makes for the right kind of decay is injury. I say injury, not infection, because while we have a notion that germs cause disease and, by implication, decay and death, that's not actually what happens. It's not well known, but Louis Pasteur, the 19th century French scientist who gave us the germ theory of disease, is quoted to have said on his deathbed, Bernard was right. The germ is nothing. The terrain is everything. Both Claude Bernard and Antoine Beauchamp disagreed with Pasteur throughout the three men's careers, claiming that Pasteur's germs were just the messenger, and that the body itself had to be failing to maintain its own equilibrium in some regard, thereby enabling some germ to take hold, to find purchase in the organic soil, so to speak. So it's some kind of insult to the body, most easily recognized as a traumatic injury, but also reasonably extended to long-term stressors like dehydration, malnutrition, other environmental factors that weaken the body's ability to hold its own. When I talk about this in shamanic terms, I talk about the body not being full of its own rightful spirit. Soul loss is a classic condition recognized in shamanism where some essential part of the soul or spirit of the being has been lost either by acute or chronic trauma leaving the remaining energy signature or soul profile incomplete. And as we know, nature abhors a vacuum. So with the being that putatively owns the body, not fully occupying the body, it's an opportunity for squatters to come in and make themselves at home. When I work with someone who's struggling with dis-ease and dysfunction, I will often say, Fill yourself with yourself. Fully occupy your body. It's my way of recognizing that disease is opportunistic, that the microbe, the intrusion, the interloper, is only responding to an opportunity, and that the opportunity is one of the vacuum, biological space unoccupied by spirit. And as I say, that happens through the soul loss that accompanies acute or chronic trauma. So the organic process of injury, a wound or a failing internal system, creates conditions ripe for decay. What is decay, then? It's the evacuation of life force from what was once viable living terrain. And somebody is going to capitalize on it. Here's the thing. By its very nature, the life force that's being withdrawn is the life force of the previous occupant, the owner of that living terrain, that living tissue. And if the owner is withdrawing, it's going to be somebody else who comes in and colonizes and exploits those resources. That might be a microbe, or it might be a maggot. Gangrene, necrotic tissue, rot. These are conditions that occur in an otherwise living being. Parts of that living being are not occupied, indeed perhaps no longer occupiable by the owner. They have become abandoned. The body does what it can, as intelligently as it can, to triage. Tissues are abandoned because they must be in order for the body to survive. This is actually a very cool process, because as readily as the body does triage and abandons damaged tissues, it also has the capacity to regenerate tissues 
and heal itself. Now, to be clear, the damaged tissue still has to be abandoned and removed. Sometimes it's done by internal resources. That's the best case scenario. But sometimes the damage is too severe and too widespread. And the conditions like nutrition, water, calorie reserves, etc. of the body are too strained, too suboptimal for the body to handle all the work. And so an outside contractor is called in. Or perhaps more often, more realistically, just shows up. We call these characters scavengers because they remove the abandoned terrain. Now there's a difference between scavengers and squatters in the following respect. Scavengers take what is abandoned. Squatters occupy what is abandoned and begin a process of colonization on the rest of what's available. We typically call squatters parasites. There's a fine line a microbiological and biochemical terrain of moral hazard that we don't have time to examine today between scavengers and squatters. But as is often the case, the devil and the truth can be in the details. Let's just say that what constitutes abandoned territory is a matter of scale. At the microscopic biochemical level, a cell, a cell fragment, an enzyme might be abandoned by the spirit of the owner or aggressively hijacked by an interloper. Who can say? At some point, it all becomes a matter of perspective. And so we come back to fly medicine. Maggots are the contractors, the scavengers. Not all species of fly are pure of heart, but apparently the common blowfly turns out to be an extraordinarily reputable craftsman. Here's an excerpt from an article in National Geographic 2003. After two or three failures of conventional medical or surgical therapy, maggot therapy should be considered for non-healing wounds, especially those which are infected or contain dead tissue, gangrene, according to Ronald Sherman, a doctor at the Department of Pathology at the University of California, Irvine. Wounds commonly treated include foot and leg ulcers, burns, and post-operative wounds that have become infected and reopened. There is no shortage of patients eager to give the creatures a try. Suffering the maggots for a few days is a small price to treat messy, painful wounds that have lingered for months or even years, doctors say. Sherman recalls the case he saw of a woman with a perforation of the bowels and an infection that had spread through the abdomen, causing gangrene of her bowel wall and peritoneum. Because it became necessary to remove dead tissue every other day, in a risky surgical procedure, the attending physician decided to try the maggots. 2,000 of them were sprinkled over her open abdomen and then covered with a dressing, said Sherman. Two days later, the maggots were washed out, revealing no more gangrene. She healed well, and the abdomen closed without the need for any further intra-abdominal surgery. And here, from a 2013 article in Scientific American, One study published last year in the Archives of Dermatology showed that maggots placed on surgical incisions helped to clear more dead tissue from the sites than surgical debridement, the current standard of care in which doctors use a scalpel or scissors. Maggot debridement takes out all the dead and infected tissue, which is necessary for the wound to close, says lead author Anne Dompmartin Blanchard a dermatologist at the University Hospital Center of Cannes in France. Surgical debridement is often lengthy and painful, so 
something that maggot therapy eliminates, she adds. From ancient times until the advent of antibiotics, physicians used maggots to help clean injuries and prevent infection. Because the maggots feed solely on dead flesh, doctors did not have to worry about bugs feasting on healthy tissue. And finally, medicalmaggots.com, yes, there really is a site by that name, offers the maggot, an FDA-approved medical device since 2004, with this encouragement. The scientific literature identifies three primary actions of medical-grade maggots on wounds. They debride, clean the wound by dissolving dead and infected tissue with their proteolytic digestive enzymes. They disinfect the wound, kill bacteria, by secreting antimicrobial molecules, by ingesting and killing the microbes within their gut, and by dissolving biofilm. And they stimulate the growth of healthy tissue. So, to the extent that the body has the capacity to maintain its energetic, soul-spiritual integrity over a significant portion of its biomass, these maggots are in there doing a fabulous job of cleaning out dead tissue. Dead tissue that would otherwise continue to foster less cooperative players, squatters who have their own agenda, perhaps the aggressive takeover of the entire biomass by exploiting and expanding on the weakness created by the trauma. The key here is to examine the interface between the damaged, abandoned tissue and the healthy tissue that surrounds it. I leaned into my journey into the experience of the wound and the maggots. As long as there was a consistent application of life force energy underneath the damaged tissues, the maggots would only go so far. They would exercise diligence in consuming what was abandoned, but they would not could not, by genetic predisposition and, I, I guess, spiritual or karmic law, engage in harvesting more than was offered. Something about the scale at which they operated, not, not microbial, but physical, not playing chess with biochemistry, but rather physically chomping away, it was sufficiently coarse that the body had a chance to establish a detente with them. Both worked to eliminate the finer-grained conflict at the microbial level that might lead to further biochemical destabilization of the environment and more abandoned tissue. Fly medicine. I zoomed out, way out. Where were the conditions, I pondered, in the grand arc of human experience where fly medicine was operating? I looked for the female flies, metaphorically, the opportunistic egg layers, and I looked for the metaphorical maggots. I looked back at the two places, the two organic conditions where fly medicine had its natural purchase, waste and injury. So I looked at waste first. Where do we have an accumulation of sociocultural excrement? And more specifically, what are we ingesting that is hard to fully digest? Because the cultural food we eat, if it's completely digestible, would produce no waste. The less digestible, the less healthy the intake. The more noxious and the more voluminous the waste that comes out the other end. I, I, I thought about addictive behaviors like video games and YouTube and Facebook. I thought about the social imperatives to work at jobs we don't love, laboring and giving our life energy to social constructs that don't nourish us. You know, the bigger house and the fancier car the pea-green, chemically-fertilized, water-guzzling, unsustainable lawns. 
waste. The very food we eat. The unsustainable beef, pork, and poultry industries. All the unsustainable practices that drive us to overconsume and produce waste products. Our disposable culture. In some ways, now, to be fair, we're getting better. In some areas, we're getting worse. I spent the most time examining our synthetic behaviors. Pornography, for example. The most common searches on the Internet by far are for sexual content. Sexuality and sexual energy is a huge potential source of appetite. Exploited, it becomes a mass of indigestibility. And then there's the inevitable excrement. Something or somebody has to clean all that up. Our repressed, straight-jacketed notions of acceptable sexual behavior, coupled with our Madison Avenue-tuned expertise in amping sexual desire and using sex to sell virtually everything, means that there's a huge imbalance in the flow of that kind of energy. We build it, exploit it to sell things we don't need, generate profit as a result, that's the energetic harvest or the digestion, and excrete a cultural waste product that needs to go through the process of decay. The cultural waste product, I think, is unexpressed sexual energy. We're not allowed by our culture to metabolize it, to extract its energy for our internal growth and thriving. So we build it up and then pass it on through, only to turn to fly medicine, perhaps online pornography, for example, to break it down for us. Now, whether pornography is a scavenger or a squatter, we'll have to leave for another day. But that's kind of what I was left with. And then I turned to injury, to trauma, and damaged tissue. Where was that happening in our culture? God, everywhere. Wherever there's a disenfranchised person, somebody who can't find work, or has a great depth of energy and creativity and can't find meaningful work. The inner city, poverty, abuse of power, deception in politics. Anywhere we find the distorted application and consumption of human energy, of human agency. That's where we see crime, drug abuse, mental illness, war, fly medicine, occupying the decay, consuming the decay. We relegate our fellow humans to be the damaged tissue, to be consumed by the spiritual and psychic and emotional maggots. But unlike in nature, where, where a balance is found and the desire to minimize waste is part of the program, we seem to be actively creating and fostering waste, indigestibility, and injury. We're breeding flies by feeding flies. So, tough enough, that lesson, that vision, that journey was powerful, but I wasn't done. I began to examine my own life. Where was my consumption and digestion inefficient? Where was I doing a poor job of assimilating the energies I was taking in, thereby creating noxious waste? Where was my damaged, abandoned tissue? What parts of my life, what echoes of my experience, were triaged, locked away, unexamined, 
compressed and isolated from my life force, from my spirit, and from my soul? What parts of me would the miraculous cooperation of this miraculous expression of the divine apply purposefully? Where could I welcome fly medicine? And how could I support that process? What would I have to do to create the detente between where the fly spirit would do its work and where my soul could readily hold its own? What was that border, and how would I find it, bring my attention to it, and invigorate it, vitalize it, occupy it? Like in a game of risk, when you move an abundance of armies onto a territory so that when the opportunity arises, you can move them into new territory with a sense of confidence and assertiveness. Where? Shame. Shame arose as the preeminent location of tissue I would not tend, places in my psyche that I would not occupy, locked away from the invigorating force of my soul and spirit. Whatever I felt shame about within myself was a place of woundedness, of necrotic tissue, of vacuum. I found these conditions in myself resonated most deeply in my first and second chakras. Shame associated with sexuality, for sure, but also some kind of shame, shadow, or self-loathing around my first chakra as well. Now, while the sexual themes of my personal shame were relatively easy to spot, and they're probably not so different from yours if you have sexual shame, and no easier or harder to examine and heal, there was also that something in my first chakra, the chakra of survival. So what was it? Shame of, shame of what? Turns out, it was weakness. Shame of weakness. Shame associated with not being strong enough to master my life. Shame associated with not being able to digest what I had been taught to consume. Shame of not being happy with the way my life turned out, even though I followed the plan, was a good boy, and worked hard. Shame that my diet had led me to produce noxious waste. Not just physically, but things like my divorce, for example, and my tyrannical treatment of my children when they were growing up. Kind of a shame of breeding flies. Well, there was only one way to go once I found myself in this condition. It was pretty straightforward. I had to welcome the maggots. I had to go be a good host to the process of letting something else consume my waste, my death, and my rot. And I had to get close enough to my wounds to invigorate what surrounded them with life, my own intimate life force energy, with my soul, so I could have a hope of suffusing the vacuum left by my wounds with my full self, to occupy myself fully, to heal and regenerate the parts of me that had been triaged. I had to support and welcome fly medicine. And now, now I get to make choices that reduce my need for fly medicine. I can see more clearly now when what I'm consuming is indigestible, when what I'm participating in culturally is creating noxious waste, when by action or inaction I create trauma, injury, and necrosis in myself, in my psyche, or in my culture. 
and what happens when I choose to accept or ignore it. How much tissue I hand over to the flies and how much waste I produce. It correlates directly with how much I obligate myself and the world around me to rely on fly medicine. Fly medicine is not dark or evil or gross. It seems to me that it's simply the opportunistic exploitation of decay. It's not bad. But we might want to ask ourselves, why do we need so much of it? Now, as a postscript, I'll share this, because this has been a challenging piece. As I worked through this process up on the mountain, my journey ended and I realized what I'd been given. I was visited by my my lovely girlfriends, the honeybees. They reminded me that there's another side to the story. They said, don't be so glum. Look at us. We're the opportunistic exploiters of fertility. All that pollen mixing and spreading. They were literally tossing pollen everywhere, tossing fertility everywhere, and enjoying the results. We'll be right back. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. It's a lot to take in, to understand and embrace the freedom and creativity of playing games, and then to reflect on whether something that looks like exploitation might really be freedom, or how freedom might be exploitation. And how and where we're contributing to decay, and what that looks like, and how we judge it, and how we choose to embrace it and heal it in ourselves and in the world. It's also the summer solstice, so our thoughts can also turn to the great power and inclination of life to abundance, growth, and harvest. So, think about that, too. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for our live on-air call-in show, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.